Welcome to Manufacturing Talk Radio, the only show that takes a look at the obstacles and opportunities open to small to mid-sized enterprises that manufacture here in America. Brought to you by All Metals and Forge Group, with your hosts, Tim Grady and Lou Wise. Welcome, everyone, to Manufacturing Talk Radio. How are you today, Lou? Great, great. Uh, we're, uh, we got a special show today, and uh, actually, it's, uh, it's a very special show. It's a 90-minute show. Uh, we have uh, a breaking news event uh, this morning, uh, so we are not going to do our usual uh, postscript of last week's show, nor are we going to be doing um, almost any commercial breaks except for one for our self-serving interest. We're going to have All Metals and Forge Group tell you a little about us. And um, we are going to go through for 90 minutes over a very important issue that most people haven't even heard about yet. Uh, Tim? We're going to do a real deep dive today on the Los Angeles port situation, pun intended. We have three very uh, uh, informed, uh, well-educated, high-powered guests today. I'd like to introduce those. To our listening audience, the first is Peter Friedman, who's executive director of the Agriculture Transportation Coalition. That's the organization uh, uh, the trade press has identified as the principal voice of agricultural exporters in U.S. transportation policy. And since I hail from the state of Wisconsin and the great farmlands there, I can relate to agriculture. Uh, Peter also serves as counsel to organizations such as the Pacific Coast Council of Customs Brokers and Trade Forwarders and the Coalition of New England Companies for Trade and represents U.S. port authorities, uh, all with an interest in maritime commerce. And he is also uh, as counsel for the U.S. Senate Committee on Commerce, Science, and Transportation. Peter was responsible for drafting the Ocean Shipping Act. So he's well-versed in what's going on uh, with shipping and trade at the ports. Uh, next, we have Robin Burstling, who joined the National Association of Manufacturers in April of 2008 as Director of Transportation and Infrastructure Policy. Uh, she served as the Counselor to the Assistant Secretary for Transportation Policy in the Office of the Secretary at the U.S. Department of Transportation. And in uh, October of uh, 2001, she joined the Department of Transportation at that time before she was with NAM as the Schedule C presidential appointee, so no lightweight there. And we have Mark Herzell, who is the uh, president of the Los Angeles Custom Broker and Freight Forwarders Association, which represents licensed U.S. customs brokers, freight forwarders, non-vessel operating common carriers, and firms which facilitate international trade. They have about 300 members and 6,000 individuals who file more than 95% of all import entries in the Los Angeles Customs District. Mark, welcome to the show. Thank you. And Robin, certainly welcome to you. Thank you. And Peter, thank you for being with us. Thank you very much. Uh, I know that we were some concern um, about time for the show, so we're, we set the clock for 90 minutes. If we run 90 minutes, that'll, that uh, you'll get a lot of information out of this show today. But I want to give each of our guests an opportunity to kind of give some opening comments uh, based on their experience with what's going on with the port. And, Peter, I'd like to start with you. Go ahead. 
the current situation uh, at the West Coast ports, and this impacts all U.S. West Coast ports from the San Diego uh, border uh, with Mexico all the way to the Canadian border and all ports in between. So any cargo going into the United States or out of the United States along the West Coast is severely impacted. The West Coast is the nation's largest international trade gateway. So the ramifications of these ongoing delays, which have been going on for over six months now, slowdowns uh, at the ports, uh, there are many causes, but the primary one is that the contract between the International Longshore Workers Union and the Pacific Maritime Association, which represents the marine terminal operators, that is the employers of longshore labor, that contract expired at the end of June of this year, and since then there has been no contract in place. We do not know precisely the issues that are in contention at this moment, although we know the overall issues that were being negotiated, and perhaps in order to gain leverage in the negotiations, the longshore workers have not been working at the normal pace. West Coast ports typically lift on and off ships about 29 containers an hour. Compared to the East Coast, which is often 30, compared to Charleston and Savannah, which are typically 44 containers an hour, compared to Europe, which is 35 to 40, compared to Asia, which is 50 containers an hour. So already, West Coast ports operate less efficiently than other ports in the United States or the rest of the world. But during these last six months, the lift-on, lift-off averaging is now about half, about half of even the slow rate before, so about 12 to 15, with many terminals closed entirely as longshore labor walks off the job or shows up with maybe half the manpower that is requested or, and ordered. So the result has been that cargo can't get into the United States at the normal pace and cannot get out of the United States at the normal pace. The impact is felt throughout the country. So whether you're in Wisconsin or Chicago or Memphis or any place in the country, the, the injuries are in the hundreds of millions of dollars. I received a note today from a protein that is a meat exporter, sausages and so forth, in Wisconsin and Minnesota. They are now having to resort to airlifting their cargoes overseas to Japan and to Korea in order to keep those customers satisfied. And at that rate, where air transport is five to ten times the cost of ocean, all the profit and much loss, all the profit is lost and many losses are incurred financial losses with each sale, but they have to do that to keep the foreign customer happy. For exporters, the difficulty is this. There's nothing that we produce in the United States in agriculture or forest products, nothing, that cannot be sourced somewhere else in the world. If we can't deliver dependably, affordably, those foreign customers in China, Japan, Korea, 
and all over the world will find some other country, some other source, some other place in the world to supply. That is already happening. We have examples of the permanent damage that is being caused to U.S. exporters to agriculture and forest products, permanent damage as a result of this situation at West Coast ports where the congestion is unprecedented, where cargo is not moving in or out. The breaking news this morning is that finally, after many, many requests by many organizations representing importers and exporters, the White House appears to be engaged. The Federal Mediation and Conciliation Service has been requested by one party, the PMA, the employers, to be engaged. The White House has supported that. The Longshore Union is being contacted by the Federal Mediation and Conciliation Service. And hopefully, the White House will press the parties to cooperate, including the ILW, and hopefully the Federal Mediation Service will be able to get in there and do its work and resolve the remaining outstanding contract issues and get the terminals working again. That's my overview uh, and how we got to the current situation. Well, I appreciate it, Peter. Uh, Robin, would you share your overview from the perspective of NAM and, and anything you can share Absolutely. from your experience with DOT? Yeah, and um, I, I think we can add manufacturing to that list that uh, Peter talked about, impacting agriculture and forest products. Uh, ports are absolutely essential for manufacturers in the United States, and as Peter pointed out, the slowdowns and the walkouts have become very common events over the past several weeks and months, and the disruptions in the Pacific Northwest, at the, Pacific, uh, at the ports of uh, Los Angeles and Long Beach, and at the Port of Oakland are seriously compromising efficiency to the point where manufacturers and other exporters are losing sales opportunities in Asian markets. The arrivals of inputs are delayed, and this slows production in places like Ohio, Nebraska, and Texas. And then you add uh, additional transportation and logistics costs, um, which certainly pose uh, a challenge to our global competitiveness. So one thing we've been you know, out doing is, is pointing out that the impacts of these slowdowns are serious and real. Uh, the inability to move additional products uh, through some ports is resulting in, in lost sales overseas and even canceled orders. And I think in some instances, manufacturing production is certainly at risk, and then the delayed shipments of components reduce working hours uh, for employees at different plants around the country. So the situation is very serious and, and really cannot be ignored any further. Uh, Mark, how do you see it on the ground from your perspective? Well, I, uh, it, it's hard to follow such uh, knowledgeable uh, um, people before me on, on these issues, but absolutely um, I concur with everything uh, that they have said. One of the things that, that we have seen is um, people looking for routing um, of cargo to, uh, uh, to other ports to try and uh, get around uh, the L.A. Long Beach uh, and the West Coast congestions. And uh, quite frankly, the, the capacity uh, to take that volume in those other ports uh, isn't there. I mean, L.A. Long Beach is in the past uh, handled 60% of the containerized volumes in the, into the U.S. And, uh, and with that kind of capacity, it, it can't simply uh, be absorbed um, elsewhere. And so we have uh, clients today who are incurring uh, demerge uh, charges or storage charges uh, for containers that are, are, are being held up at the port and unable to be recovered. 
um, and, and that's just uh, wasted money um, that has to be paid to, uh, to recover those containers uh, from, the, from the port. Or in the alternative, uh, shipping cargo to, uh, to an East Coast port or a Gulf Coast port and then having to uh, uh, transport it back to the U.S. West Coast. Um, all of those are, are highly inefficient. Um, adding both cost and, and time to the supply chain, which uh, is just a, a negative uh, to our overall uh, nation's economy. I'd like, I'd like to bring up a few points uh, going along and listening to uh, all of you, uh, which are basically saying the same and or similar aspects about what's happening. Uh, I'd like to get to the point about, you know, why is this happening? Uh, what happened in 2002? What happened in 2008? Why was there uh, mediators involved in 2000, I think, 12? Um, why the unions are against automation on the West Coast when the rest of the world is moving forward? Uh, you know, these are very broad-based uh, questions uh, that struck me, and I've made some notes as we're going going along. And I'd like to whomever to be able to jump in and uh, respond to some of these. Uh, I did have one in particular that I wanted to get out, and uh, uh, that was uh, you, Robin, uh, with your uh, the National Association of Manufacturers and your membership, which is. Uh, I vaguely remember seventy-five thousand as your membership. Is that near the right number? Um, I, we have about fourteen thousand uh, oh. members of the NAM. Uh, yeah, so but we're a national okay. association, obviously, and it'd be nice if we were that large. But uh, this is where I, we are. I, yeah, I, I just uh, recall the wrong number. But with all of these uh, people who are uh, from the NAM membership, for example, which is the largest manufacturing association in the country, how much of an impact is all this going to have that they, they're not even aware of in totality? Uh, what are we talking about in terms of the billions of dollars that are uh, going down the drain as we've already uh, established? Uh, so I, I throw I throw the questions out and uh, let's have some dialogue on this um, as to what what caused it, how are we going to fix it, and so on. Uh, Mark, maybe you can Mark? address the M and M issue. Yeah, I guess um, you know a couple of uh, things that you know I would I would add is is um, certainly the ILW uh, PMA contract talks are um, a, the single largest uh, uh, significant um, contributing factor to the issue that, um, that we have uh, today and the congestion that we have today. But I, th I think it's also important to understand there's, there are lots of other things that went into this, this whole um, situation that, that made it a perfect storm. Um, you know, even as, as far back as the late spring snows that, um, uh, that caused congestion in, in the rails and unloading uh, the import cargo, uh, you know, back in the Midwest, um, even even that far back, it started to uh, cause a wrinkle in the, in the supply chain. Um, you know, then in, in May uh, 2014, we had uh, container volumes that exceeded uh, everyone's um, expectations. People who were shipping early uh, to avoid any uh, delay, um, like we like we have today. 
Um, you know, the other, yeah, another factor is um, uh, petroleum and uh, uh, the price of oil and, and petroleum trains uh, basically uh, um, taking power um, that might otherwise be diverted to intermodal cars um, and intermodal trains. So um, decreasing the ability of, of, of a way to recover from the, uh, uh, the wrinkle that happened um, with, because of the uh, influx of freight and, and the snowstorms. So, um, and then also chassis, um, the wheels that go under the containers, the, the way they were managed um, also had an impact. Um, so uh, there's, uh, there's a number of other factors that, um, that went into um, causing uh, the situation that we have today, uh, but certainly by far, as, as Peter and Robin have shared, that is um, the, uh, without having the labor to, to work through these other problems, um, it is is gotten significantly worse. Yeah, and if I could, you know, add, you talked about um, sort of what's happened in the past, and I think a lot of our members have, you know, they looked at uh, what happened um, in 2002 during uh, the 10-day uh, lockout of the West Coast ports, and then, uh, you know, some uncertainty last year uh, when – between 2012 and 2013 on the East Coast uh, with the ILA and, and experiencing two different strike threats um, during their negotiation period, we actually um, joined together with the National Retail Federation and commissioned a study to really show what the economic impacts are of a protracted um, you know, work stoppage at the ports. Um, over a 5, 10, and 20-day period. And, you know, no, no surprise that the, the numbers are in the billions of dollars, um, you know, that the U.S. economy writ large could, you know, lose up to, you know, $2.5 billion a day if if these ports were shut down for a long period of time. Uh, and, and it's really important for our members to understand that um, you have to be prepared. And I think a lot of, of them did take that message on board um, and understood that there was uh, shipments would have to be diverted or changed, or or um, an expectation that um, inputs would be brought in uh, ahead of time, and and folks would stock up uh, on their inventories. Uh, but to some extent, I think many folks also felt that um, there was, while there were elements of uncertainty, that the talks would be wrapped up uh, here, you know, by September or October at the latest. And I think it was um, a little bit surprising when we had heard a lot of rhetoric um, from, from both sides that, uh, you know, things were going to continue on as normal. We are so uh, – we recognize that, um, that L.A. and Long Beach um, will lose out in the long term if, uh, if, it, if those ports prove uh, unreliable for shippers and importers and exporters, that this is not uh, good for the reputation of the West Coast. So we thought that perhaps people were listening and understanding that, uh, that really business as usual and, and shutdowns and lockouts and work slowdowns were not, were not good for uh, importers, exporters, and, and, and folks in the U.S. economy. Peter, uh, these hundreds of millions of dollars in losses that uh, the agricultural industry is going to take, is there insurance to cover it, or is somebody likely to uh, launch a class action lawsuit against the parties? At this point, uh, there's insurance for cargo damage, but oftentimes there are exemptions when it comes to a, a strike or a, a port labor disruption. 
uh, people have not brought class, a class action suits in the past uh, when there have been union actions, labor union actions, whether in this arena or any other. Um, so that that is difficult. We are looking into it. I would say this, that 10, 12 years ago, the West Coast ports uh, shut down. There was an absolute strike and or lockout, depending who you talk to, and the port shut down. And I'm going to give you an example. The best almonds in the world are those produced in California in terms of fat content and so forth. And the Japanese candy makers, confectioners, manufacturers of candy depend on them. They buy a lot of almonds. But when our West Coast ports were shut down, those candy makers did not stop producing candy because they couldn't get any more California almonds. They didn't slow down their machines one bit because Turkey was more than happy to supply their almonds. Twelve years later, many of those Japanese candy makers are still using the Turkish almonds, and they have not come back to the United States and never will. That's lost U.S. exports, lost employment here in the United States, lost cargo through the port of, in that case, Oakland, and lost jobs for the longshoremen. What's happening we're seeing here is that there are global trends already in place that are creating different supply chains for importers, exporters, manufacturers that are reducing the volumes of cargo that will be imported into the United States from China in favor of more cargo coming in from South Asia, Southeast Asia. Already we are seeing dramatic increases in the amount of cargo entering the United States through the Suez Canal, entering the United States, coming from Asia, through the Panama Canal and accessing, just as the Suez Canal cargo accesses the U.S. East Coast and Gulf Coast ports. Recall at the outset I said that the number of containers that they lift on and off a ship in Charleston and Savannah is 44, while the West Coast, even when things are going well, is 27. The lack of dependability of the West Coast ports, and it did not just begin with these six months. For the last two years, most every West Coast port was shut down for a, a minimum of one morning. And generally, when you close down a port for a morning, it takes about three weeks to recover. So you can imagine what happens like the ports of Los Angeles, which were shut down for a solid week about a year and a half ago. The disruption is such that it is driving supply chain managers to find alternatives to West Coast ports. As manufacturing moves south out of China, because China is becoming more expensive as a place, as more manufacturing in the United States goes moves into the right-to-work states in the southeast, where all the foreign automobile plants are located, BMW breaking ground on a second plant in South Carolina, they import tens, if not hundreds of thousands of containers of automobile parts, components. Those are going to enter the United States now from the south into the southeast ports. The distribution centers that importers used to be building as fast as they could in Southern California, in the last year and a half, only one major distribution center has been built in Southern California, while dozens have been and are being built in places like Spartanburg, South Carolina, etc., Those cargoes will all come through those southeast ports. The west coast ports used to have a monopoly 
as only four ports in the United States had naturally deep draft harbors and channels that could handle the world's largest container ships, Seattle, Tacoma, Los Angeles, and Long Beach. By 2018, there will be five ports on the East Coast that can handle those ships, Miami, uh, Charleston, Savannah, Norfolk, New York, and some would say add Baltimore to the mix. So the monopoly of the West Coast is lost. So if you already have these trends in place where the bulk of the population of the United States lives in the eastern one-third of the country, closer to those southeast ports, where the fastest-growing states population-wise are in the southeast part of the United States, so therefore that's where the consumers live that wear the footwear and apparel and watch the TVs that are all imported, then doesn't it make sense to supply chain managers at all these companies, importers, exporters, manufacturers, and so on, to find a route that goes to faster, more efficient, and more dependable labor-wise ports? They are already doing so, and the injury to those who depend upon trucking, working the docks, and so forth at the West Coast ports, that's going to be permanent because the shift of transportation from dependence on West Coast gateways to now dependence increasingly on Gulf and East Coast gateways is only accelerating. And so the a question that, for example, I posed to the president of the Longshore Local for Los Angeles and Long Beach, where Mark Herzl is located there. He's in the center of the storm down there. Uh, I posed to the, the president of that local, I said, what are your children going to do for a living if you continue to chase the cargo away from the West Coast ports? Supply chain managers, I've got emails today from Wisconsin, I mentioned. I've got emails today from somebody else in Texas. They say they, that what they're essentially saying is to heck with the West Coast ports. From now on, they're using the Canadian Gulf ports. I'm getting inquiries about the new Mexican West Coast West Mexican port that AP Muller has put $400 million into to building the infrastructure. These are permanent changes in the routing of components that are going to U.S. manufacturers of the imports that are going to consumers in the United States and of exports that have to leave the United States from our farms, from the ranches, and from the food processing facilities. Peter, um, to me it sounds as though L.A. is already past the tipping point. Is there any coming back? Well, L.A. has the advantage of being a massive population center, so you have a lot of consumers there. So you can justify some ship calls directly to Los Angeles, Long Beach, just because you have domestic consumption down there. California uh, has been fairly successful in chasing virtually all manufacturing out of the state due to their environmental and labor and public policy and other government regulations and their tax rates. So there isn't much manufacturing that much left in California, but they do have a lot of consumers there uh, that want to import and, and wear things. The question is, 
are ships going to find uh, are the importers going to find it better as some have for example Nike's largest distribution center for the country is in Memphis and they're building another one further east Adidas and Reebok have their national distribution center in South Carolina near Port of Charleston if importers are going to make the Southeast, their national distribution center, then they will access the California market by rail, So, in, which is turning our supply chain backwards. It used to be they'd come in through California and rail across to the other side of the country. That's changing. Yeah, Lou, I think it's important to understand that, that basically um, cargo is, is, is much like water. It finds the path of least resistance. Um, and uh, and supply chain managers are always 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 looking for a better alternative. And better doesn't necessarily mean cheaper. Um, better oftentimes means more reliable because, as you and your members well know, that as as, as you have to shut down a factory because you don't, you don't have the parts uh, needed to assemble and further manufacture what you're making, um, that cost is, is, is extraordinary. So uh, that reliability is, is paramount um, when, when calculating uh, the cost of, of getting a good, uh, you know, through these ports, uh, be it through L.A. Long Beach or, or the southern or eastern ports um, uh, to, to where it needs to be. That reliability is, is so, so, so important. Yeah, and if I could Robin. add to that. Yeah, I'm going to add to that point a little bit. I mean, I do I feel I have to stick up there there are manufacturers um in California who are are doing really well and it's in spite of a lot of the the regulatory challenges that they face um in that particular state. Um but you know, if you look at um what's happening uh in the West Coast today, you know, obviously I mentioned manufacturers in the the middle part of the United States who, whose production lines are impacted by this. Mm-hmm. And a lot of them uh, moved, they were they might have been using the East Coast. And because of the labor issue uh, in 2012 and 2013 there, they, they returned uh, to the West Coast and using L.A. and Long Beach. And now they're questioning that strategy, and they may go back East, or they may go to Canada, as, as Peter pointed out. So, I mean, I think uh, the, the point that, you know, uh, uh, Cargo operates a lot like water was was spot on, and uh, and supply chains will remain fluid and flexible. And I think you're going to see um, a lot of interesting developments uh, from the supply chain perspective. You know, in the aftermath of of the current uh, negotiations on the West Coast. Robin, are you beginning to hear anything from your NAM members about? Uh, uh Production lines being shut down, layoffs, uh, inability to get raw materials to to feed production line and just-in-time inventory? Sure, yeah. I mean, I have not heard anything about layoffs, but, yes, um, production lines uh, being shut down because containers hadn't arrived with critical components um, certainly has occurred. Um, It's, you know, as you pointed out, manufacturers are operating in a just-in-time environment, and it's for both inbound and outbound shipments. Um, and, And so I... In every industrial sector within manufacturing is impacted differently by this issue, um, but the slowdowns and have definitely impacted production um, at you know at facilities in California um, and, in, and in the Midwest, and it's it's a serious issue. Um, I think one thing that challenges manufacturers is they do have worked well and succeeded in adverse circumstances um, in the United States, and they always find a way 
as best as they can to uh, to please the customer and serve the customer. But at, at the same time, um, it's challenging, and we've gone through great pains um, as a nation to secure export business um, in Korea, Australia, and other Pacific Rim nations. And if these customers cannot be supplied as assured, the product sourcing just moves elsewhere, as I think Peter alluded to. And then we lose out to European and other global competitors who have you know, open and functioning ports. So this really is not um, – so I, I put this on the bucket of um, reputational harm for the United States, and, and this is not really a good direction for us to be going in. And even in those cases where you're successful in developing uh, alternative um, supply chain solutions, those solutions cost more and therefore lower your margins and then have the negative impact on, on the overall economy. So, uh, you know, as Robin said, that, that importance of reliability to your customers is 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 critical and 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 if you have to do that and and supply that need um at a, a cost that cost may be lower margins or in some of the examples peter's shared with these uh protein exporters um you may actually be operating at negative just to uh to keep the customer so you don't lose them for the next uh, 15 to 20 years and a smaller or medium-sized manufacturer is going to be impacted very differently than a larger more global uh manufacturer let me ask. Let me ask the question. Um, if knowing that all of this uh, that uh, we're talking about is true, and uh, what is it that the union isn't getting? The most well-paid uh, group of people in the country, in terms of unions, I think I've heard numbers like 150 to 300 thousand. Uh, salary range uh, for the longshoremen. Shore, uh, they've got the Cadillac health care plan. Uh, they've got uh, uh, off time, vacation time. Uh, I think I've heard five and six week uh, vacations. One, it's hard for them to get a whole lot of sympathy for their, their, their efforts that they're doing now. Um, what is it that they don't get that they're losing? They're going to lose out in the end. In my in my view, uh, they have a, a few challenges. One is that they have very generous pension program. If you start automating ports, you need less labor. If you have less labor, then you have fewer people contributing to those very generous pension plans of the retirees. So they absolutely want to maintain all the jobs. They shut down the Port of Portland, Oregon, on and off for three months over two jobs that were held by the IBEW, the Electrical Union, two jobs. They were plugging in and unplugging the refrigerated containers. And the ILW wanted those jobs so badly that this went up to the governor. Apparently, there's a lawsuit now, and the ILW local may be on the hook for millions of dollars. But whatever happened, the port of Portland was effectively shut down on and off for three months over those two jobs. They want more jobs. Now, the president uh, of the Los Angeles local said that he wants the ports to operate 24-7, but he's opposed to automation. In other words, he wants more people working there. Typically, around the world, we're talking in the developed world here. We're not talking, you know, odd uh, one-offs in undeveloped countries. We're talking 
Japan, we're talking uh, all of Western Europe and, and Canada and so forth. The cost of operating marine terminals, about 80% goes into the capital acquisition, those huge container cranes and all the tractors and everything on, on the terminal. And 20% goes to labor costs. That's in places like Germany and Sweden and, and France and Holland where labor costs are, are generally quite high relative to the U.S. 20% go to labor. Here in the United States, it's backwards. 80% go to labor. 20% go to the capital. Now, the capital is no less over here than it is over there. It just shows you how much more terminal operators and thus the ocean carriers who use those terminals and thus the importers and exporters who put their cargo on the ships are paying for the labor. But I think the labor wants to have more people working to fund the very generous pension programs. And two, I don't think they're looking down the road. What are their children going to do? Flip burgers? Because if they chase the cargo away in order down a generation from now, in order to maximize their income over the next four or five years, or actually in the next two and a half years before the next contract is negotiated, it's short-sighted. And perhaps this is a problem this union and maybe some others have, not looking further down the road and pres presuming that everything is going to stay as it is, that all carriers will feel they have to call at the West Coast ports. But that ignores there's a new widened Panama Canal coming online next year. China is building a much bigger, deeper, wider canal across Nicaragua now. As I mentioned before, production is moving from North Asia to South Asia. All these things are changing the world as we and the longshoremen have known it. And if the longshoremen don't adapt, then their kids are going to be flipping burgers for a living. Mark, you're, Mark in, the what the, of that, you're in the middle of that battlefield out there, Mark. Uh, what are you hearing in terms from the union side, aside from the it, fact it, that... It, it, it's interesting. Uh, I think uh, um, some of the... Um, uh, some of the, the rank and file um, are not necessarily um, hearing uh, clear direction from from their leadership. I think as to what's uh, what's going on. Uh, I, I had been talking to uh, uh, someone and, and shared some of the things that that I had heard, and he said, "Well, you know, that's that's great because you're hearing more than I am as to, to what's going on." And 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 I I think. Uh, um, I, I think there is uh, there is a, a genuine desire to uh, to to get the cargo um, moving through the ports, but when, um, as occurred in uh, the past few months, the uh, the, the union uh, restricts um, the, uh, the the operation of um, some of the machinery uh, to only Class A um, full-time longshoremen, even though the the Class B um, casual workers have been uh, tested and qualified to operate this machinery when they when they limit their own ability to meet the need of um, of the customers the the people whose cargo is moving through there um, they are um, they're making a statement that we're not going to to do what it takes to get the cargo uh, to move through and 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 I, and I fear that it's you know, as Peter said it's really to their 
long-term detriment. When you look way back in the 70s when, when containerization first started, uh, the the number of longshoremen, you know, physically, manually operating, uh, you know, pallets and unloading pallets from the holds of vessels um, was significantly lower than the number of longshoremen employed today. And, uh, yes, there will be a, 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 a decrease in the number of, uh, of uh, full-time um, longshore laborers needed, but if we don't meet that need uh, now and, and don't become more efficient in how we operate um, cargo through these terminals, um, someone else will. There's plenty of other um, options, as Peter mentioned, uh, of other places that are, are hungry uh, for that and, and don't feel they have a, a birthright for, for jobs. And this is the amazing thing. You know, the Canadians um, have developed the, uh, Prince Rupert Bay, uh, and that, I believe, is a fully automated terminal. I don't think there are a whole lot of people up there working at the port. And everything just goes on the train and goes through Canada and then comes down uh, into uh, Chicago and then is distributed out from uh, the Midwest. And it, they've been very successful uh, in taking cargo away from L.A., Long Beach, and other West Coast ports. Well, it's entirely possible, as we saw in you know, the newspaper industry years ago, that the newspapers were very heavily unionized, and as more modernization and mechanization came into that uh, environment, uh, those jobs went away. The International Topographers Union uh, fought uh, their dying breath to have uh, 12 uh, or 15 people at the New York Times who would come in every day and sit and literally do nothing because uh, the jobs had all been automated, but the union wanted to hold on to some ITU jobs. Well, uh, it, Mark, it, you... it, today, today for a casual, uh, someone who is not you know reporting every single day to work, a casual um, to report to work, they must uh, first get a phone call telling them to go down to the union hall. Then they have to go down to the union hall, and they have to stand in line in, in the prescribed order. And if they don't stand in line in that prescribed order and wait in line to be told where to go to work, um, they, they then lose their ability to work that day. There are, are some people who, who may work, you know, may do this for five, six, seven years um, as a casual um, and, and it's extremely inefficient. My mother was a, a substitute elementary school teacher, and she got a phone call at 6 o'clock in the morning that told her what elementary school to go to. Now, the only reason that, in my mind, that the ILWU continues the banner in which they do is to have jobs of people who not only give out the jobs at the hall, but, you know, clean the bathrooms, wash the floors, open the doors, you know, check the heating, all that kind of stuff. All of those things are, are designed to, uh, to, to, to give someone a job as opposed to operate more efficiently. And, and you know, the, the, you could easily operate the uh, dissemination of these uh, casuals, um, you know, through an automated system, uh, but they, they simply choose not to even consider uh, such a thing. I think it would be useful to kind of review uh, because probably most of the listeners are not familiar with the hiring hall hiring hall system, which actually has disappeared uh, at the end of the 19th century. Uh, it really, literally, it doesn't exist anywhere except in the Longshoremen's Union. The way it works to operate the cranes and the terminals, 
if it was any other business, you'd hire a group of people who would come to work to the same terminal every day at the same time. They would work together. There'd be a crane operator. There'd be the lift guys. There'd be the the tractor drivers and so forth. So you'd have a gang of maybe 30 people, 20, 30 people who worked together every day. And they knew each person knew their jobs, and they knew how to coordinate with other jobs. And that's the way any manufacturing works. You know, the same people come in every day, work on, say, the automobile assembly plant, and they got the same job every day, right? So they get pretty good at it. Could you imagine at an automobile plant that every single day the manager of the plant puts a call in to the union hiring hall, and the union hiring hall says, first come, first serve, gets the jobs, okay, everybody line up. The first guy in line, he gets a job as torquing some wrench. Now, he's never worked in that term uh, at that line before. He's never torqued that wrench before. He's never worked on that part because this is the first day he was sent from the hiring hall to work there. And so you would build the working crew on that assembly line at a plant, person by person, every day. And it would be a different group of people every day, not used to working with each other, not even knowing each other. And sometimes they had somebody who was good at torquing the wrench and somebody had never done it before, but they're still got to – can you imagine how slow that assembly line would run? That's the way the longshore work the terminals on the west coast of the United States with these hiring halls. Every day, it's a different group of people working each terminal. Sometimes you get good ones, sometimes you get slow ones, sometimes you get lazy ones, sometimes you get hardworking ones, but they don't work with each other. Some are inexperienced. Some are ready to retire. And so it is a system that was created back around the late 1800s because in early 1900s, because they thought that there were some bosses, labor bosses, dock bosses who were playing favorites, and they would hire the same guy for the same best job every day. So they started this hiring hall system. That has not been available, fortunately, in the United States as a hiring mechanism since about 1920 in this country, except today at the long sh- uh, at the ports around the country which explains the inefficiency why they can only do 27 containers an hour at the west coast ports in south carolina the dock workers are employees of the state of south carolina and in georgia and savannah the dock workers are employees of the Georgia Ports Authority. Now, they have an affiliation with the East Coast Union, but they work under the rules that prevail in every other avenue of employment in this country. You have the same people showing up for the same job every day. Uh, That is something that the ILWU, I believe, is working very hard to preserve. It, It essentially mandates inefficiency and cost. And I think the LW is working very hard to preserve that. Peter, are East Coast ports more mechanized than West Coast ports at this point? At this point, the most mechanized port on in the United States is one in Norfolk. Uh, it was built by uh, the Dutch uh, AP Moller, uh, not Dutch, Danish AP Moller, 
uh, company that operates many terminals around the world, as well as the world's largest steamship line, Maersk. They built that in Norfolk. However, the local union opposed the utilization of all the automation, so they, in order for the union to actually not picket and strike and shut down that terminal, the AP Moeller had agreed not to actually use all the automation that they had installed. So that terminal uh, could operate probably 25 to 45% more efficiently if they could just use the mechanics that they have already installed there, but that the union, the East Coast Longshore Union, uh, is preventing them from using. And some of that same automation does exist on the West Coast. We've got the, the Traypak terminal. There was an event mm-hmm. that uh, Peter was at in the fall mm-hmm. where uh, actually the, the longshoremen um, uh, accused or, or, or um, suggested that um, that uh, this automated equipment was, um, was being hacked um, uh, through some unknown and unnamed nefarious uh, party and, and dropping containers on ILW labor um, beneath them uh, you know, suggested it on purpose. It was it was it was insane. But uh, um, you know that uh, that Traypak terminal in Los Angeles um, um, can be uh, highly automated. But uh, again, the, the ILW says no, you can't can't use automated guided vehicles because they might you know run into someone who's you know, taking a nap under a container. And this is yeah, and they usually are taking a nap under the container, right? Uh, but this is this is not unproven technology. It is the standard technology throughout the developed world in Asia, in Western Europe, in Rotterdam, the world's largest port complex, in Hamburg, and so forth. In fact, they go far beyond that over there. I mean, they have cranes that are all operating all independently. First of all, the technology from somebody who explained this to me is frankly no more complex than what operates an elevator, you know. So if a longshoreman says they're worried about the dangers of this automation at the dock, then I presume they take the stairs always. They don't take an elevator. (laughs) The second thing is this exists everywhere else in the developed world and even much of the developing world. This is not – so we are probably as – we are probably more undeveloped in – Port technology in our country, the most undeveloped nation, uh, certainly of the developed world, but even the developing world, even in Mexico, they're installing automated uh, cranes and so forth that our unions aren't allowing to function down here. And the Port of Long Beach actually has been working really hard to develop what's called the Middle Harbor Project, project that um, is, is going to be highly automated. Um, and and I, I think that's part of the issue that um, the local rank and file see out here is that that um, that terminal has has been progressing. Um, it has another couple of years before it will be fully online. But when it is, um, it will it will have the ability to to move more containers uh, through it uh, than uh, than previous terminals with with fewer people than previous terminals. So. Um, they, they they see the the physical uh, you know cranes rising and, and the yard getting developed and and uh, you know they're they're fearful of, of technology you know, these are people who 
who apparently think that you need to use a, a, a string and two tin cans rather than a cell phone to communicate. So. And this is the thing, is the union has to understand um, that there there will be jobs in the future, but there are also going to be different kinds of jobs. And that is, uh, I think, uh, an issue that seems to be lost in, in the discussion. Well, that's a very good point, Robin. That That is um, exactly right, because as they see automation coming and they look around and they see automation has actually happened not only in ports out everywhere in the world but in other industries and certainly manufacturing uh, in the United States, they want those jobs. Now, the mach- if you are automating and you have the automated equipment, one would think that perhaps – the best labor to work automated electronic information uh, uh, technology would be electricians, right? So the IBEW or machinists to repair, not longshoremen. They're not trained for that. So machinists. However, the LW is engaged in, and that's definitely part of these contract negotiations, enforcing that all jobs automated, non-automated, for which they're capable or not capable of doing. All jobs will be ILW jobs. And they have engaged in sort of running skirmishes with the IBEW. They were The ILW was successful there. They took two IBEW jobs away. And in, uh, in Oakland, they have had running skirmishes with the uh, machinist union. Uh, which, and I think also in LA and Long Beach, which had jobs on the terminals, and the ILW chased those away and now runs those. So part of it is who is going to be the most competent labor to work in a somewhat more automated environment? And I think that's a big portion of the current negotiations between the ILW and the terminal operators. Yeah, and I'm going to go back. Sorry. I'm, I'm sorry, Robin. Peter, that begins to sound like uh, uh, organized labor has become organized crime. I'll interject <laughs> on that point. <laughs> you know, the, the point is the international or the global customer looks at this and says, this is crazy. I don't care what is happening on the West Coast. I am going to go to the European supplier uh, who can provide me everything I need and forget the American company because that ship can leave Rotterdam and get to us and we don't have to deal with any of these shenanigans. That's really what it's, it's boiling down to at the end of the day. That That is true. When, we've, when we get into these discussions as to whose fault it is, is it they're not enough chassis or is the union have their arguments and the terminal operators have their arguments and they all start pointing fingers at each other and we try to figure out who's problem. Robin is exactly right. The supply chain manager's job is not to understand, you know, the internal workings of labor unions in the United States. The supply chain manager's job is to get a product from point A to point B and they will find the way to best work it and they don't really care about the ins and outs of everything. Just like now, we want this interview to be conducted with people in four different parts of the country here to run smoothly. None of us really want to know how a telephone is built or how the cell networks are, are operating. We just want it to work. And, and Robin is exactly right. 
Now, here's, here's a real problem for the economy of the United States. A, manufacturers here have to struggle with getting the product out versus men, and they have to compete with manufacturers around the world who, who don't have to. They can put their resources into developing products rather than you know, fighting supply chain disruptions at the, at the port. But here's another one. Our largest export for the United States in volume is agriculture and forest products, by far. The farms can't move. Manufacturers can move, and they do move from state to state, country to country, continent to continent. Importers, they can import the product from one side of the country to the other side or whatever. But, you know, the almond growers are growing almonds in the Central Valley of California and maybe in Oregon. That's it. They're not going to grow it anywhere. The hay producers, and we ship hundreds of thousands of containers of hay out to Asia, where Japan has already informed our U.S. government that it needs to get engaged because the cattle herds in Japan and their horse racehorses aren't getting the straw and the alfalfa that they need, the hay and the alfalfa they need, because we can't get it out. But simultaneously, while complaining to our government, they're going to Australia and developing new sources there. Our hay growers are not going to move. Our cattle ranchers are not going to move. The stockyards are not going to move back to the streets of Chicago like they were in two centuries ago. You can't, and there isn't enough margin in these high-volume products to move apples that can't get out of Washington State or potatoes out of Washington, Oregon, and Idaho they need to be able to get out of the closest ports, Seattle, Tacoma, Portland, maybe Oakland. They cannot be put in trucks and driven to Houston, driven to Charleston or Savannah, put in a rail car. You can't do it. Those businesses go out of business. There are some who cannot move. Yeah, that's one of the things I think we have, we've found as we've uh, got navigated this whole process is that uh, there is no singular authority um, to uh, to be able to make anything happen here. Uh, many people have uh, shared interest in this in this cause, including the the port authorities themselves, who are are really landlords of the process. Certainly, uh, they would share uh, their passion um, for getting a resolution, but they have no seat at the table. They have no authority to make anything happen. Um, you know, and that that continues all the way down from the uh, even the, the the senators all along the uh, the U.S. senators from the western states um, wrote letters to the the PMA and um, the ILW urging them a few months ago to uh, to come to a resolution. But again, they have no authority to uh, to get anyone to to actually sit down to a table and talk and agree and and say this is reasonable, this isn't a reasonable. Mark, what's your expectation on the West Coast uh, for Los Angeles custom brokers, freight forwarders, uh, all of those companies that are, are involved with this in terms of their survival? I mean, if they're going to lose port volume in Los Angeles, are they simply going to lose those companies? Well, the, the, the nice thing about our business is even though we are focused in the L.A. and Long Beach uh, ports, 
um, we can still manage other cargo going to other ports, other to other U.S. coasts. Um, so, so we we still manage shipments that go to Savannah, to Atlanta, uh, you know, to Houston. So, um, it, it's not going to have that in itself isn't going to have a negative um, impact upon us. But we'll we'll have a a problem is is as these customers find other international. Um, sources for their um, for their products. That's that's what's going to impact us. When instead of sourcing it from the U.S., um, they're routing it uh, um, or, or, or sourcing it from Australia to to go to Southeast Asia or something like that. So the the the, the points that Peter makes about that um, are very very true um, for not just agricultural products but for manufacturing products as well. Well, we we have. Um, um, and a couple of interesting thoughts. You know, we've talked about uh, the problems and why it's, why it's still continuing, uh, going back to the 1800s to current. And um, actually, my father was uh, in the linotype unions, uh, linotype operators union at one time, and uh, they don't have obviously linotype. Uh, machines any longer, so he was out of a job, and then he went and got found himself another job, and that's what people need to be thinking about because they're going to lose their jobs. And we have, uh, I'm going to throw this out, and then I think we're going to take that one break um, in just a moment or so. Uh, but I want to leave you with the this possible technology that we do have at hand if it can be cultivated the actual shipping industry will be set on their ears and that is one uh, dirigibles bring back the dirigibles they did cultivate back in the 50s a plan to be able to transport goods uh, in a dirigible at a very low cost and uh, they, I saw something recently in a popular science magazine not too long ago where they actually have new plants, new designs where that can actually be utilized and you can land them virtually anywhere. And the newest technology, and I may be thinking way far out past the edge of the cliff, and that's the, the uh, drones. Uh, industrial drones to be able to transport goods and services where you don't where you really don't have a lot of people uh, conducting uh, the required required jobs so maybe the the union can get involved and have a couple of longshoremen sitting down on the pad where the drones land but keep that in mind and we're going to come back to that and we're going to take a commercial break for just a bit and uh, See you when we return. Manufacturing Talk Radio will be right back. American Crane and Equipment Corporation in Douglasville, Pennsylvania, is a leader in specialized cranes, hoists, and material handling equipment for industries including aerospace, nuclear, oil and gas, transit, construction, and waste handling. Call 877-877-6778 or visit AmericanCrane.com. That's AmericanCrane.com or 877-877-6778. All Metals and Forge Group manufactures open die forging in blocks, hubs, shafts, flanges, cylinders, 
gear blanks, and custom forge shapes, including seamless rolled rings in alloy, carbon, stainless and tool steels, aluminum, nickel alloys, copper and titanium for parts and assemblies in aerospace, oil and gas exploration, defense, machinery, transportation, shipbuilding, energy and power, pulp and paper, and many other industries. Visit steelforge.com or call 800-600-9290. Okay, we're back. Um, I left you all with a uh, kind of a far-fetched uh, potential solution to the West Coast Union problems. Uh, any thoughts, any knowledge, any um, input on that? I can – I will throw this out. Uh, steamship lines have been tr investing in these huge new ships, and – Frankly, even though I've been involved with this industry for quite a while, I was aghast when I saw their latest series of slides. One of them, uh, Steamship Line OOCL, showed a ship that was a 9,000 TEU ship, so carried 9,000 of the 20-foot containers, Okay, which is now considered sort of a medium-sized ship. Standing on end next to the World Trade Center towers in New York. The ship is longer than the World Trade Center's buildings are tall, were tall. Wow. It, it is unbelievable how big they are. Now, they have now got larger ships coming, double the capacity, 18,000 TEUs, 18,000 TEUs. Now, keep in mind that 9,000 TEU ship was standing on end, was taller than the World Trade Center towers. The tallest building in the world, I guess, is in Kuala Lumpur. And all right. these ships now, all these ships stood on end are taller than that Kuala Lumpur building. When you take each ship and it has eight, say, say it has nine, I'm just going to say nine, 10,000 TEUs, nine, uh, those containers, 20 foot long, eight foot high, eight foot wide or a 40 foot container feu 40 foot long eight foot high eight foot wide some are high cubes so they're a little taller some are a little longer but that's typical of the industry so each truck that you see driving down the highway with a chassis which is just a trailer the wheels and one of these boxes on it imagine 10 thousand of those trucks that's one ship so the alternative technologies um, are kind of hard to imagine any technology that exists that could handle that size could you imagine a dirigible picking up the world trade center tower the new one <laughs> and just carrying that around uh, so is that you difficult i think they, the answer the answer is on, on, it seems to be what's already in place in the developed world, new container cranes at the ports, highly automated, operating 10 or 12 of those cranes on one ship, completely automated, fast, on big ships that have a crew of maybe 18, 19 people on it. 
That's all the ship has, 18, 19 people on board. And uh, they move around the world, and they go through the Suez Canal, which has no size restrictions. Even the large Panama Canal has some restrictions on size, but the new one that that China's building across Nicaragua will have none. And so, you you know, that's that, I think, is the technology I'd love there to be, don't get me wrong, some alternative to calling on ports. But right now I don't see it. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I would vote for pneumatic freight, but we didn't talk about that. Um, <laughs> I, think, you know, I think to some extent, um, it, you know, the conversation about drones and whatever else is out there is, fun and thought-provoking, but I think when uh, Malcolm McLean came up with the container and really ushered in this whole new era of containerization, um, I I think it is here to last, um, very much like commercial aviation, and um, everyone flies on an airplane all the time and doesn't think twice about it is the accepted norm, and I think that the container ship certainly is the accepted norm uh, for shipping goods and products. Um, but I think, as, as Peter pointed out, um, more technology, better cranes, better equipment, better throughput is really what will uh, it, what is needed at the end of the day. Now, Mark, I, I know that you, Mark, I know that you've said that there are more ILW jobs today than there were, if I understood you correctly, you know, 40 years ago. But are we seeing a turn now where, you know, the ILWU could make itself obsolete? Well, I, I think that's, that's the fear that they have and, and that others, um, others have. Uh, you know, it, the, the, the political uh, clout, however, that they have been able to, uh, to leverage um, now and uh, in the past years uh, makes that uh, unlikely in the foreseeable future. Uh, may it happen in the future? Potentially. Um, I, I think there's uh, there's certainly um, lots of, of opportunity for for this automation. I think that that skilled labor, um, that efficiency that uh, Peter uh, discussed uh, occurs in some of the the southeast states. Um, where you have the same people showing up to to work every day at the same uh, terminal and operating the same equipment, that kind of efficiency um, is uh, is very very powerful. However, um, when uh, a couple of contracts ago, when when that when those kinds of side agreements that had the same workers showing up at the same terminals uh, time and time again um, was uh, was considered was 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 made out. Was was outlawed was no longer allowed to occur because the, the union feared that the workers were becoming too loyal to the employers and not to the union itself. So um, the fact that they were able to identify that as a threat uh, tells me that it is a real threat, and and I think there's there's a potential there for the um, for labor to. Uh, to recognize that they can do a better job and they can be more efficient, and and I, and I think uh, you know at some point it becomes uh, uh, a part of of management's responsibility to to offer a better alternative, um, and and once you can offer a better alternative, then uh, then I think uh, I think there is some some chance that um, that the, the the strength of the union might. Uh, you know, might wane, but but I think Peter's point of pensions is absolutely critical. Um, you know, that is 
Uh, that's a huge number out there. There's lots of people living longer um, with uh, very, very nice packages. And, and as some other, um, uh, some other industries are, are um, looking at revisiting some of the pension packages that were offered um, you know, years and years ago, I, I don't see how um, the ILWU can, can exist in the future without um, considering that as well. That is, that is a very difficult pill to swallow, but if they're going to exist in the future, they're going to have to address that. No, that's the same problem we have in the United States with the Social Security system. We've got uh, the baby boomers retiring out. They're going to be pulling their uh, Social Security checks, and we have the birth dearth behind it, which is an insufficient population to fund the Social Security system unless they tax it more. And behind that, we have the millennials, which are largely or will be largely made up of uh, uh, immigration uh, workers uh, that don't generate the kind of dollars to feed the Social Security system. So that's going to be a real problem. Uh, Peter, just out of curiosity, in the agricultural sector, what kind of products were lost in the spoilage at the ports as we've gone through the last month or two? Uh, potatoes, excuse me, potatoes, apples, Christmas trees, um, all of those can spoil. Christmas trees are sent over to Singapore. You, you know, it's, it's mind-boggling the volume of car, car, cargo that leaves this country. Hundreds of containers of Christmas trees going to Singapore and then distributed elsewhere in Asia. Uh, and that goes into a container that has then a layer of ice thrown on top of it in a refrigerated container. But, you know, once something's in refrigeration, as you know, and same thing, another one that was lost is sausage. You take a pound of hamburger meat and put it in your refrigerator. You know, you come back about seven, eight days later, and it's no longer that rosy red. You know, it's kind of right. brown and green. Um and so when we're sending to the rest of the world uh, products that our negotiators work very hard to gain access to foreign markets in trade agreements. So you have the U.S.-Korea Free Trade Agreement reduced Korean import barriers to U.S. chilled beef and pork poultry. That's what happened in the negotiations reducing those barriers to access. But then you get it loaded into a refrigerated container here, and it needs about 12 days, 18 days maybe to access the Korean market. If it sits in our U.S. port for three weeks, you know, it's spoiled hamburger meat by the time it even gets loaded on a ship here. So apples, the same. Hay, transits pretty well it doesn't really need refrigeration but it just needs to arrive in time because the livestock is depending upon it overseas but spoilage occurs with anything that's refrigerated uh, and even things that aren't refrigerated like almonds or even processed uh, frozen foods um, that mm -hmm. are manufactured here in the U.S. and sent out to those newly open markets in Asia that Peter referenced I mean there. So it just it goes beyond the agricultural products as well. We've had uh, food processors lose you know millions of dollars a week um, due to spoilage or canceled right. orders. Even the customer says, "Forget it, don't bother." Good, good point. And uh, on dollars and cents, there is a uh, 
what they call a protein exporter, but he they they're the one of the nation's largest uh, pork producers, and uh, they say when they get a container load of pork, chilled pork, so he serves in the supermarket as fresh, you know, they sell it fresh, it's chilled. Uh, the co- the the cost of that container load of chilled pork in Korea when it's opened at that lowest wholesale level is $175,000. That's what the U.S. producer gets, $175,000. But if that container is delayed a few days anywhere along the line by truck, by rail to the port, loaded on the ship, getting the ship across and so forth, if it's delayed a few days, the only option that our exporter has to save that cargo is to turn the temperature down in that container to freeze it. Once the frozen product arrives over there, it's only worth $50,000. They've lost $125,000 just because of the delay. That's That's, that's shocking numbers. Shocking numbers. Robert, I'm just curious from uh, NAM's point of view, and we've had uh, Brad Holcomb on the show who each uh, month on the first week uh, talks about the ISM number. And you'll all recall the first quarter of 2014 where we had negative GDP. Uh, Any sense, Robin, that we're going to take a GDP hit uh, come first quarter of 15? You know, that's a good question. I don't know. I don't have that crystal ball view. But um, I think one of the challenges uh, for many of us um, who – uh, are advocating here in Washington for uh, some greater action is things are okay in the economy. Things have been chugging along. It, the stock markets hit new highs. We've got positive GDP numbers out there. Um, and this is this appears to some as just, you know, a bunch of, you know, cranky interests who are unhappy with the way a labor negotiation is going. Um, so I don't want to cast aspersions on anyone, but I think we have had some frustrations, especially with the administration, just seeking some sort of assurance um, that uh, the administration will do everything possible, you know, to keep these West Coast ports open, efficient, and keep that cargo moving during this period of uncertainty. I, I think, as I referenced earlier, you know, when these negotiations first commenced in the early part of the summer, the ILWU and the PMA committed to work without interruptions. And really, I, I think all of our members are eager for a return to that promise. Well, we have uh, been talking here now about uh, almost 90 minutes. We've got about 10 minutes to go in the show. And we certainly brought out a lot of where it came from, why it is, where it's, where it may be going uh, in terms of particularly L.A., uh, I do have a, a, an open question to uh, ask the three of you as to what kind of solution do you see coming, and is it going to come anytime soon, federal mediators or not? It's open question. Well, I'll start. I guess uh, um, you know uh, the, the good news is is we hear that the the federal mediation and, and conciliation service is, is is going to be involved. The bad news, however, is last week um, uh, the PMA issued a, a statement saying all this uh, all this news of uh, rumors of, of good news is is unsubstantiated. Um, you know, it is, it is a very um, very confidential process, very uh, silent process with 
with really no um, visibility to those outside the negotiating table. Um, you know, my initial thought when this whole thing happened is you had one had to thicken their supply chain a couple of weeks and uh, and everything would be uh, resolved and back to normal by August. It really didn't appear that there were any major issues uh, to be resolved and. And, and obviously I was wrong, and my crystal ball has now been uh, taken away from me. But uh, um, it, is, it, is, it is impossible um, for me to, as I look at the issues as, as were presented when they first sat down and said these are the things we're going to talk about, to see anything that um, can't reasonably be resolved by reasonable people. And, I, and I, I, I can't wait to hear once they can talk about it. Uh, what the issues were and how they were being addressed. I would say uh, that one of the primary issues that's out there uh, leads us to an answer uh, to your question as sort of what's the solution. I see the solutions as short-term, medium-term, and long-term. And I got to tell you, I really don't like the long-term uh, solutions because I'm a big fan of the West Coast ports, and, and I really want West Coast ports to be successful. So I'm very scared of the long-term solution. But the short term is this: one of the issues out there is who's going to pay the so-called Cadillac tax, but it's an 18% excise tax under Obamacare or the Affordable Care Act uh, on uh, health care plans that are. Uh, valued above a certain level, just very valuable health care plans. I think uh, when uh, the White House and President Obama was developing that, they thought it was the fat cats on Wall Street that get these uh, plush health care plans, and then they turned around and thought it's actually labor unions who have them. So the bottom line is that there's this big tax bill that's coming due as soon as that excise tax goes into effect in 2018. That is a $150 million bill. The union guys who are getting the benefit of that plan, of those plans, they don't want to pay a tax. They want the employer to pay the tax. They see if they have to pay the tax, then it breaks into their free health care coverage, which they're used to and like. So it's a $150 million bill that people are negotiating over here. I mean, it's it's less amorphous than some of these things that we've been talking about of uh, pension funding and, and automation. $150 million. Who's going to pay it? Now, they could either resolve it now in these negotiations one way or another, or they could make this a three-year contract that would expire in 2018 and not deal with this issue at all and leave this mm-hmm. issue up to the next negotiators. Three years from now. Now, three years from now is going to come awfully quick for anybody who's a supply chain manager for a manufacturer, agricultural producer, or so forth. Three years is right there, smack in front of us. And if they don't nego- if they don't resolve that issue now, I think the short-term solution, well, will be some resolution and everybody will go back to work. But the mediums term solution is that every supply chain manager better get the heck out of Dodge, which means better have an alternative to U.S. West Coast, even if it means bringing your cargo through the Pan- from Asia through the Panama Canal to a southeast port, put it on a railroad or truck, and truck it back to the West Coast if you need it. But you better have a solution because that's still going to be a $150 million bill that's, being, that's unresolved. Long term, I do know that the investment in the Mexican West Coast port 
and the rail service that will serve that port and bring the cargo directly across the border at Laredo into Texas, into our heartland, into the manufacturing heartland, you know, is is continuing that investment. And I just think long term, people are just not going to be able to stomach or want to stomach these disruptions. If you're an importer and can move, you will move. Here's the difficulty. The containers enter the country, say the importers move to these places like Houston, where Walmart has its biggest distribution facility, uh, and the southeast of the United States, and those imports get come in there. They're offloaded out of the containers, trucked to where people live and work and buy things, and that's where the containers are. Now, what about agriculture and forest products? What about the food processors that are in Idaho or western or in eastern Washington or eastern Oregon? What about the onion producers, the hay and alfalfa growers, the apple growers, the almond growers, all these other folks, the cheese manufacturers and the dairy farms? They're all over there on the west. Where are they going to get the containers? How are they going to get containers? You're not going to move economically an empty container from Georgia or Savannah or Charleston, all the way to the Pacific Northwest to load up. And you're not going to economically move apples from the Pacific Northwest down to Charleston to load up into a container. That's the conundrum, and that's that's the real challenge down the road. Um, I'm going to take baby steps, and really the, the, the time is ripe for um, – the other side, uh, ILWU, to accept the intervention of a federal mediator. Um, it was, I think, a, a, not necessarily a good sign uh, that PMA uh, cried uncle and said, we need help. Um, but uh, it was definitely, I think, a signal that things were not going so well and, again, that this bridge was too far for them to gap alone. Um, so we have the PMA calling for the federal mediator, Hopefully the ILWU will take the signal and get on board. Um, we saw a great success um, with the involvement of the FMCS uh, when we had strike threats on the East Coast in 2012 and 2013. And they really did work hard to, to bring uh, the ILA on the East Coast and, and their employer group, the USMX, to an agreement without disrupting any port operations. I mean, that's been a really big difference between uh, what we're experiencing now and uh, what we went through in 2012 and 2013, there were no disruptions um, on the East Coast. This uh, is is very much uh, painful and intolerable for all of the shippers. I have uh, one last question. We've got about three, four minutes of showtime, and, and, and I I hope your like question relates to when the president is going to pick up the phone or interrupt his vacation. Uh, in Hawaii to address this situation. <laughs> well, I don't have to ask the question now. You asked, asked it. So now you can give me the answer. <laughs> well, I'm going to stay I'm going to be optimistic like Robin. And I am going to say that I hope that the fact that the federal mediator this morning announced that they're getting engaged is a reflection of White House engagement. I can understand the White House does not want to offend its friends in organized labor uh, by appearing to be too involved in pressing a solution. But I am very hopeful that the White House, somebody at the White House, maybe nobody in Hawaii, but somebody in the White House, 
has got the Federal Mediation Service engaged on this thing. I do think, however, it will take the president to personally engage with the head of the union and the head of the PMA. I think it's important to note that Peter and others were actually um, at the White House uh, before Thanksgiving pressing them on this exact same issue of getting um, getting involved and in, in, in putting their nose in, but they were reluctant to do so. So uh, as much as I hope it's all true, I'm, I'm, I'm skeptical that they're, uh, they're, they're going to actually take some real action. All the organizations that we on this phone call represent, the Pacific Coast Council of Customs Brokers and Freight Forwarders, National Association of Manufacturers, Agriculture Transportation Coalition, etc., have signed on to a letter of 163 organizations, I believe, uh, to the president that's being delivered today saying we really, really do need a solution to this thing because the injury damages to our economy are, are mounting. Yeah, and I think, and I go back to I, when the PMA raised its hand and said help. Um, I, I think that was a counterpoint in many ways to some of the commentary we've we've heard from the administration. Well, we hear everything is okay. Both sides are at the table. We don't want to disrupt progress being made at the table. Well, when one side is saying, in fact, no progress is being made, we need help. Uh, I don't think the the White House can can maintain its posture of, you know, seriously monitoring the talks. Well, I think we've pretty well covered we pretty well covered it. We're down to about a minute to go and I'm going to throw out one quick question and just a real quick qu- uh, answer. Why has there been a news blackout throughout these last 5-6 months? Real quick. We got about 45 seconds. <laughs> out of sight, out of mind. Those marine terminals are located way away from where people actually transit every day on their way to work, and they don't see it. And answer number two, Robin? I just think uh, this is something that, again, people don't think about every day. Uh, this yeah. is mm-hmm. This is one of those things we all take for granted, actually. And Mark, I agree. I agree. Most people think that uh, milk comes from the store. They understand that it comes from a cow, or <laughs> that parts from the factory, you know, come from from someplace other than some other factory down the street. And uh, you know, we're, we're the the sophistication and interdependency of our global supply chain is only increasing. This problem is going to continue to uh, to expand in the future. Not get much smaller. We, we can't isolate. We have to say goodbye. Thank you very much. See you next time. Thank you. Thanks for joining us on Manufacturing Talk Radio. You can hear our next broadcast each Tuesday at 1 p.m. Eastern Standard Time at msgtalkradio.com. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.